the atmospheric city of Edinburgh, the wild highlands, the almost spiritual solitude of the outer islands. These are just some of the travel treasures you'll enjoy in Scotland. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're updating our itineraries on Scotland. Whether you're discovering your roots, tracing the steps of Bonnie Prince Charlie, enjoying a wee dram with new friends, or the evocative wail of bagpipes, Scotland never fails to make a lasting impression. Tour guide Ken Hanley is based in Edinburgh, a city that's become extremely popular in recent years. We've invited Ken to our studio to share his latest tips on experiencing his homeland. I'm passionate about Scotland's history for a tiny country to survive what we have survived over the hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, it's amazing. He'll join us to take your calls in just a few minutes. But first, we'll open our phones to hear your stories about memorable food experiences around the world. You're traveling with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Few places can match Scotland for raw, rugged beauty and genuine hospitality that makes you feel like part of the family. I'm Rick Steves. I've invited Edinburgh-based tour guide Ken Hanley into the studio to bring us a touch of the magic of Scotland. Ken joins us in a bit. But first, let's check in with our traveling listeners to see what they're up to. One of Scotland's most famous dishes is haggis. Not exactly appetizing, but certainly memorable. What are some of the most unforgettable foods you've had in your travels, both good and yucky? We're looking for your stories and maybe your warnings about the food and drink in faraway lands. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com or post your comments whenever you like at our website at ricksteves.com. We're talking food, and we've got Sherman on the line from Redondo Beach, California. Hi, Sherman. Well, hello, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How's your, uh, have you taken your tongue out sightseeing lately? Well, I tell you, that, that trip to Tibet was fantastic, and I, I was quite astounded at the quality of food that we found there. It was awful. Really? I mean, In you, you just could hardly describe it, because if you're accustomed to eating at, at a reasonable level, Tibet is just not the place to be. I mean, we were fascinated by the country. So overall, you had a good experience except for the food? Well, except for the food and the altitude... Because my wife and I both were quite ill in, in Lhasa, but I think that's because our planning was not that good. Hmm. I, I think that if you, if you go on a bus or a car or something that takes you gradually up to 12,500 feet, that you don't get altitude sickness as, as well as if you just get off the plane and, and find yourself really ill. Boy, that's a very good tip. What is the altitude of Lhasa, the capital of Tibet? 12,500 feet. 12,500 feet. Of course, you can't just drop onto the top of Mount Rainier almost <laughs> and, and have dinner. It was a big surprise. Wow. So there's good advice. Uh, acclimate by taking the bus or a car yes. or a train. or and Exactly. There's a train there, but get there by uh, surface transportation. Was there a, a, like a comfortable Western tourist class hotel? Actually, no. We, we looked around, and there were just a few choices of upscale hotels. And we do not necessarily need everything to be upscale. But in, in Tibet, there's precious little to choose from. Okay, let's say it was a fourth-floor a fourth hotel. You might expect an elevator. Yeah. No elevator. Every time you had to walk, let's say, from the dining room up to the lobby area, you had to pause halfway up the stairs oh, and puff. And I forgot, yeah, to make matters worse than just not having elevators, you're at 12,000 feet. Yes. Okay. So it was a challenge. And you go to a, one of the nicer hotels in town, and you'd probably choose to eat in the restaurant there because you'd assume it has better food. <laughs> That's a reasonable assumption, isn't it? And it didn't work for you. No. All right, well, what's, no. what's your best food uh, as a contrast to uh, Tibet? Well, I'll tell you, once we were in Vancouver, and we were at the Empress Hotel, right? and they had a buffet, which was huge. I mean, it, it, 
I don't know how many square feet it might have. <laughs> 3,000 square feet, maybe? I don't know. But right. every item you touched was believably delicious. Okay. It was marvelous. So Sherman from Redondo Beach, uh, worst food, Lhasa, Tibet, best food, Vancouver, British Columbia. Thanks, Sherman. Thank you. All right, happy travels and better Bye, luck Rick. next time when you go to the Himalayas for your food. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye now. And Claudia's on the line in Dallas. Hi, Claudia. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. You bet. Nice to talk to you. Well, we had our experience of the worst food, I must say, quite surprisingly, in Edinburgh, Scotland. Hmm. Our older son was doing summer study at Cambridge University, and this was an opportunity that I had with our younger son to do some traveling um, and went beyond just the ins and outs and small towns of England, went up to Edinburgh. We stayed in the most wonderful hotel, the Caledonian, Hmm. there, and I thought this was going to be absolutely fantastic, this beautiful English breakfast in the morning. And surprisingly enough, we had taken some sausage, and I thought, hmm, that looks a little bit well done, but okay, this will be fine. And when the waiter went by, I happened to say, you know, do you always cook your sausage? This woman goes, oh, no, ma'am, that's blood sausage. Whoa. (laughs) And we thought, blood sausage? You all eat this stuff? (laughs) And so we found a way to kind of tuck it underneath the eggs. And of course... Our younger son, who had been taught by then, you know, you eat what's on your plate, said, well, Mom, you know what you have to do. And I was caught. But we didn't order and didn't pull out and um, eat things like that afterwards that we really couldn't identify well. Well, you were staying in the Caledonian Hotel in Edinburgh. That's that giant uh, 19th century palace there. And it's beautiful. Oh, right in the center. Absolutely but, beautiful. Who thought they would serve blood sausage? Well, you know, that's probably the mark of a fine place if you are a traditional Scottish diner. But you know what I've learned? Because I don't, I don't really like the sausage in the bed and breakfast anywhere in Britain. And maybe some people who are into this would be find this a sacrilege. But I just, as a matter of uh, standard practice, say, I'll have the, Engli- the, the traditional fry, but hold the sausage. The, the sausage, to me, is the one thing that's just too rich and uh, too exotic. Well, I must say, we learned that after that experience. On the other hand, the best meal that we ever had was in Ireland with a Guinness, like beef stew or pot roast, whatever they call it. Oh, yeah. With a Guinness beer. It was, again, pub grub out of this world fantastic. Hmm, The Guinness stew, yes, I've heard that's very good. All right, well, thanks for your call. You're more than welcome. Happy travels. Bye now. Sandy in Fresno, California, emails us about her favorite food. Best food while dodging a rainstorm on the way back to Venice from Murano on the Vaporetto. Late for lunch, the owner had only a couple of choices left, linguine with clams or shrimp risotto. The best part was the conversation with the people at the other tables. All of them stayed behind until the rain stopped. It's the social experience that comes with the food that makes the meal a forever memory. Frances in Salem, New Jersey, emails us. She writes, On a cold day in a Zodiac inflatable boat in Antarctica, we were served hot chocolate with peppermint schnapps. I thought I was in heaven. Cheers. That's from Frances in Salem, New Jersey. Sarah in Williamsburg, Virginia. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Rick. Very happy to meet you. Well, nice to meet you, too, on the radio, and thanks for your call. Well, no problem. Uh, I had a funny story to tell you about a time... I agree with you on the pub grub. Absolutely the best. We've eaten it all the way through Great Britain. You can't beat the price, and it never tastes bad. You know, the Uh, pub grub has improved, hasn't it? It used to be laughable, but they've worked very hard, and now you've got some uh, darn good pub grub in England. Absolutely. It's it's actually very international. They don't really serve a lot of English food in the pubs anymore. You can get French food and Italian food and all kinds of stuff. And a lot of people uh, would say that's a blessing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was on travel with my family about 10 years ago, and we were in a pub outside of England, and I'm not a big eater. I like to taste it, but I never finish it. So I asked them for a to-go container, and they looked at me funny. So then I asked them, you know, a doggy bag? And they said, doggy bag? So I proceeded to explain the concept of, you know, I, I didn't finish my meal, and I wanted to take it back to the hotel and maybe nibble on it a little bit later. And they looked at me very strange and well, we'll see what we can do, and they kind of 
kind of explained that people don't do that there. So they went back into the kitchen, and they came back a few minutes later, and they cleaned out a butter tub. And they said, well, this will probably work, but you know, ma'am, we eat our food here in England. You know, <laughs> they don't cook at home like you do in America. They just couldn't understand why somebody would go to a restaurant and not finish their food. So it was really kind of funny. Now, isn't that interesting? Because I've had the same experience, and you you learn over there, and it's kind of embarrassing, the concept of taking home unfinished food from a restaurant. It just doesn't work, does it? Oh, absolutely. They're just grateful to be in a restaurant. They don't eat out at the level we do here in America. So right. to them, that's a privilege, and they save their appetite, and they huh. completely finish. Uh, but after that, all the way through... Great Britain, we just shared meals. That way we made sure that there wasn't any leftovers and no more embarrassing moments. You know, but it is. It feels, it feels better, Sarah, doesn't it, not to waste a lot of food, and that means uh, going to the split-the-meal sort of approach, but you don't want to be inappropriate by having two people eating off of one meal. So did you find that you ordered a small dish or a side dish for the other person, or did you get away with splitting one plate, or how did you do that? Uh, we were traveling with our children, and they don't seem to question that. They're so family-friendly. That's a good point, and, yeah. Europe that when you do something like that, they understand it. Maybe between two adults, that would seem funny to them, but I just shared with a small child, and it worked out perfectly. I've always found, because I I like to order lightly in a nice restaurant rather than order big in a cheap restaurant, and uh, you can actually do that quite economically if one person orders the uh, plate of the day and another person can order a salad or a soup, and then it's, it's classy and it's economic, and you're not wasting any food. Right. Well, we had the opposite experience when we were in Belgium. Because we went into a restaurant, and, you know, I travel with the book. I absolutely am diehard, take Europe through the back door, or a book about the city, and stick to the book. And my family was so frustrated, they were about to throw the book out the window. So I said, okay, we'll do it your way tonight. We went to a place, and they didn't have an English menu, anything written in English. And they said, no, 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 we speak good English, we'll take care of you. Come on in, come on in. So my husband explains what he wants. He said, you know, I'd like some mussels and some shrimp and a little bit of, you know, he wanted like um, a mix. And no, no, sir, we got you. We take care of you. Three uh-huh. meals they brought him. Whoa. Three. Uh, Sarah, were you on that, that very, very busy restaurant row? In, in, Absolutely. You know? Yeah. See, that's the, that's the pitfall there. And this is what I try to steer people away from, but it's like the, the lion's den. You go in there, they converge on you. Before you know it, you've ordered more than what you thought, and you owe uh-huh. them $80. Our bill 10 years ago came to over $100, and I had a very, very... By that time, I had learned from traveling Europe to order small. Wow. I had something very small. He had three gigantic meals served to him. They've got these tourist ghettos like that that just everybody just falls right into, and it is a horrible situation. After that, they listened to me, and they followed the book. All right, Sarah. Well, thanks for your call. Happy travels. Eric in Bellevue, Washington, emails us about a memorable meal on the road. While visiting a Maasai village near Nairobi last year, I was received with great hospitality, ushered into a small room with a dirt floor where a goat had just been slaughtered. I was the male guest of honor, so one of the men reached into the goat, cut out a piece of raw kidney, and handed me a bloody chunk. To be offered organ meat is a great honor among the Maasai. It would have been disrespectful to refuse, so after three tries, I got it down. This is both the best and the worst food experience of my life. Should you take the high road or the low road to get to Loch Lomond? Scottish tour guide Ken Hanley joins us in a moment and takes your calls for an insider's guide to Scotland. It's up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we are in Scotland. Well, we're not in Scotland. We're in Seattle. But I've got a Scotsman here. He flew all the way from Edinburgh today, and he's joining us to give an insight into his great country. we got Ken Hanley here. Ken has been a guide for over 30 years now in Edinburgh. He's my favorite guide in Edinburgh. He helped us on our TV show recently, and uh, and Ken's uh, just got here, and, and he's going to talk to us about Scotland. So thanks for listening, and Ken, thank you for joining us. <laughs> no problem, Rick. Hey, Ken, um, you're wearing a kilt. Now, did you have any trouble getting through customs in that kilt? No, not really, no. Uh, it, it raises a few eyebrows, but uh, I think it gives them all a wee bit of a giggle, Rick. A wee bit of a giggle. But uh, uh, you wear, I, to me, you wear a kilt just like I wear pants. Absolutely, why not? Yeah. No big deal. Just the tourists think it's kind of interesting. Sure. Uh, but you're not doing it for a tourist stunt? No, no. I've worn a kilt all my life. You have. Now, are you, you're, are you Scottish first or British first? Scottish. Scottish, all right. <laughs> Absolutely. I, there's an interesting thing about this relationship between Britain and England and Scotland. I mean, it's hard for us Americans to imagine because, well, first of all, our revolution was uh, beyond our memory, and uh, we're, not, we're not part of uh, the British uh, Commonwealth anymore. Yeah. Tell me, it's a little confusing. What is the geographical island, the name of the island that you live on? Well, if you look at a map today, it'll yeah. tell you it's United Kingdom. But, but, the, but the island, is it called, is there a name for the island, actually? UK or, or, or Grand, Great Britain. Great Britain is yeah. the island. Now, UK, what does that consist of? United Kingdom. Uh, it's a breakdown of all the countries that, that make up the United Kingdom. Meaning? So therefore, you have uh, Northern Ireland, Wales, England, and Scotland. So Northern Ireland is included in that. Absolutely. Now, Wales and Scotland are part of the United Kingdom, but I understand there's a little difference technically in how they are uh, connected politically with England. Yeah, I mean, historically, um, for instance, if we look at Scotland, uh, historically Scotland has basically always been an independent country, but we formed a union in 1603, and that was the Union of Crowns. So in actual fact, the, the first king of Britain was James VI of Scotland and James I. So he's a king of Scotland and king of England. Absolutely. Now, does does Scotland therefore have more independence than Wales? Yeah, yeah. Our our autonomy today, the devolution of the Scottish Parliament is much stronger. It it has enormous powers. It even has tax-raising powers, legal powers, and so on. More so than Wales? Absolutely, much, much more. So Wales is closer to just a region of England? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Whereas in Scotland, uh, I think we see now with uh, basically the Parliament coming home Right. Uh, and again, that was another union. Because you've got the, your parliament back in Scotland now for the first time since, what, 1707? Spot on, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely, now, Rick. Is that, a, is that a big deal? It is, in one sense, and in the other sense, it's not. To you, I think, and, and to the ordinary folks listening uh, today, they probably think that's a big shift. Yeah. But for us, it's just the parliament devolving back from Westminster to Scotland to Edinburgh, to where it belongs. Where it should be anyways. And it should be there anyway. So how are relations these days between Scotland and London? Are there any real serious issues? I mean, there's no talk of secession. Is there anything like this? I don't think there's any real issues. Uh, You know, as long as we build the wall high enough uh, at the border and... uh, (laughs) I gotcha. So there's, I, I love the way the English and the Scots and the Welsh uh, jab each other in a generally a good-natured way. Yeah, absolutely. But I got to say, you guys are, I mean, you were you fought valiantly against England, and then, I mean, you had all this Rob Roy, Braveheart, William Wallace, Mel Gibson stuff, right? I mean, mm. there's this long, mm. valiant history of Scottish patriotism. Aye. And then you lost, yep. and then they outlawed the kilt, they outlawed the bagpipes, they outlawed all this stuff, and then eventually you become the fiercest warriors for Great Britain, the, the best of the, the Queen's military. Yeah, yeah, I think... Uh, How did that happen? I think you've got to take your hat off to England and they, they, they devised a simple method that was a conquer and divide mentality. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the divisory thing was they introduced something alien to that culture. Uh, so it split the culture down the middle. How did they split the culture? Uh, by religion. By religion? Yeah. Can you can you sum that up in a short? Well, bit? yeah, very, very, very simply. You just look back at the 16th century. You look back at the Reformation and Henry VIII. And if you draw a line across there, it opens up so much history. And then you then you start to understand uh, the reason why the Scots feel the way they feel, and why uh, you have what you have today. Uh, so it's quite simple. You look at Mary Queen of Scots. You look at John Knox. You look at Reformation, and you carry that from the 16th century through to 18th century. Scotland has such a spirit of independence. You've got John Knox. He was a great reformer. Yep. You've got all the Catholic uh, history of Scotland. And, and, of course, the Scots were 
kind of allied with the French historically because you were both um, Catholic mm-hmm. and you had England between you. Yeah. But, you know, most people are not aware that England was Catholic as well until Henry VIII decided otherwise. And we had to form a union with someone. We, we, and we have actually the oldest uh, alliance in the world with the French. It's called uh, the Old Alliance. The Old Alliance. And, uh, now, how does, does that show through even in cultural ways be, beyond just political alliance? I mean, is it, I understand there's some uh, cuisine uh, connections. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, uh, culturally, historically, and cuisine, we, we think haggis is very Scottish, but uh, I've done a lot of research on the natural fact that it was brought over by the French court with Mary Queen of Scots, uh, the original Say it recipe. Ain't so, you mean haggis originated with the French? A form of, yeah, yeah. Wow. We've got to be honest and give them the, their due, you know, I don't know or not. That, I don't know if that's a compliment <laughs> for any cuisine. I mean, you, you're just trying to put haggis <laughs> off on the French, I think. Haggis, what's now? Haggis is this. Um, I think every culture has a as a miserable old traditional cuisine that is kept alive just so young people can remember the suffering of their grandparents. <laughs> Would you say, you know, like lutefisk in Norway and so on, and, and uh, ribolita, the stale bread soup in Italy and so on. Uh, is haggis uh, sort of a kind of just to keep No, eye? no, no. I mean, haggis, you, you've got to be very skilled at catching the beast for a start. Oh, yeah. You know, and then once you've got the beast, you've got to be very skilled at uh, cooking it. Uh, and, of course, it's cooked in a sheep's stomach. But you're absolutely right, yeah. Uh, I think it's traditions of the past. It's um, a tradition that is still with us, and we're very, very fortunate to have it. And when, you come, when it comes down to it, um, it's a wonderful sight to see someone piping in the haggis and to address it, you know, in old Scots. So that's a big uh, tradition. Now, I find, frankly, I find Scotland, a, well, a great place to travel, but the clichés, the clichés of traditional Scotland are a little bit disappointing in, in kitschy and gimmicky Aye. these days. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, you're a Scotsman. You're wearing your kilt not, not because you're meeting a cruise ship and you want to be a photo op, but you wear a kilt because you're a Scotsman and, and you're comfortable wearing it. Yep. But if you're looking for haggis and bagpipes and so on in Edinburgh, aren't you just unavoidably putting yourself into horrible um, clichés on stage with big tour groups? Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, it's there... And, and we can talk about it, but there's much more to it than that. We, yeah. we are a culture of much more than tartan and shortbread. Yeah. And I think that will come across over the period of the, the Grand Tour of Scotland. So it's important not just to walk down the Royal Mile in Edinburgh and see the tartan shops and Absolutely. eat some haggis. But you, and how can a tourist break away from that? What is a tip for you to really feel the, the soul of Scotland? I think uh, if we're talking about Edinburgh, then we, 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 we get down into the back streets. Uh, I think you, you look at uh, the topography of the old town. Uh, you look at the topography of the city and you have a medieval old town. You have a, a purpose-built Georgian new town and peripheral to that you have 21st century. And it's, it, the world is literally your oyster. You can walk down all the little streets and lanes. You can merge yourself in a box grid Georgian new town and a wee bit further and you can go into Victorian and 21st century Edinburgh. So my tip would be to, yeah, you have a look at the Royal Mile. Of course you do. But you go up path of sea. You good. go down into Leith. That's good advice in travelling anywhere. It's just to check out the touristy zone, go to the folk show if you want to, but remember you're going to be surrounded by Japanese tourist groups and then take some time to walk down the streets and find out where people really live. Take a bus into a residential area and just get out and have lunch in a pub and wander around and talk to the people. That's what it's all about. The old bell, the new bell, Cosby Side... Is a wealth of things like that. I'm talking with Ken Hanley, a tour guide friend of mine, and Ken has flown into our Seattle studios from Edinburgh, and Ken's been a tour guide in Edinburgh for 30 years, and you wouldn't know it by looking at him. He's uh, frisky as a young kid with his <laughs> kilt climbing Arthur's seat and checking out all the wonders of Edinburgh. we got some travelers on the line here. Linda in Falls Church, Virginia. Thanks for your call, Linda. Hi. How are you doing? Nice to talk to you. I'm doing great. Yeah, what's on your mind? Well... My sister and my twin cousins and I are, the reason we're going is because our grandfather was born in Edinburgh and we want to just have a look and get the feeling for our ancestry. And we were wondering if there's anything we can do ahead of time to kind of enhance that part of um, the trip. So they're, they're checking out their family heritage. They're going to Scotland probably for the first time. What yes, you, a lot all of, of us for the first time. Boy, that's exciting. Ken, yeah. how can Americans uh, connect with their ancestry a little better? It's, uh, it's quite a lot simpler. Yeah, you can get in touch with Register House, uh, which is on the east end of Princess Street. 
Okay. And uh, they have all the records. Um, it's oh. uh, Register House. It's wow. where we register deaths, births and marriages. Or in Scotland, we say hatches, matches and dispatches. Please. So you could get in touch there. And if you have the relevant information, you would be amazed. And you can do it online as well, Linda. Oh, can you? Yeah. So that's called the Register House. And that's a place that welcomes Americans tracking down their ancestry. Absolutely. Open arms and uh, very, very reasonable as well. Linda, I'd recommend checking it out on the web, and then you can actually visit that on your during your visit. Yes, we'll plan on doing that. Thank you very much. Great. Hey, thanks We're for very your... excited about the trip. Oh, Bye-bye, Linda. Look forward Bye-bye. to seeing you. And we have Joe in Reston, Virginia. Joe, how are you doing? I wanted to mention the fact that there's other places in Scotland rather than the lowlands and the highlands, and that's the Outer Hebrides. Uh, my ancestors came from the Isle of Lewis, uh, specifically Port Ness, and I just wanted to uh, mention that so that people who went to Scotland more than once would go over there and see the Irish part of Scotland. Uh, you know, being near Ireland, it, it, it sort of mixes both cultures. Uh, the, some of the music sounds more Irish than Scottish, but hmm. it's still Scotland. No, wait a sec. Ken, is that right? There's an Irish part of Scotland, or how does that work? No, I... Um, but there's a, a Celtic fusion, I've got to agree with you. So, Joe, you're, you're talking about the Outer Hebrides, and I think very few Western or American travelers get out that far. Oh, that's right. It's very expensive to go out that yeah. far. But the, uh, what I was saying, and it's interesting, if you start from Lewis, you go from Lewis to Harris down to southern Unst. Yes, south east. As you go towards uh, Ireland... Mm-hmm. You, can, you start picking up the uh, Irish influence, even though it's still Scotland. I love that concept, Celtic fusion. Yeah. In fact, that there's one island, I think it's Unst, that's a Catholic island. Well, you'll find, you'll, in actual fact, most of them are on the West Coast. Uh, down in that area, uh, you obviously have a great knowledge. But the wonderful thing is that, uh, and as you rightly say, Joe, people come to Scotland and it, it opens a door for them, and then they say, I'm going to go back again. I just had another comment about where the previous caller, Linda, was going back to seeing Edinburgh because that's where their grandfather's from. And I think that when she gets there, she'll feel very humble because, like, you know, very few people can go back to a European country where their ancestors come from. And you get out there on, the, on like, me with Lewis or she in Edinburgh, and you think and you say, ah, oh, 100 years ago or 200 years ago, my ancestors were on this spot. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that the wonderful thing? But, you know, time has moved on, but uh, we've managed to retain somehow our culture, our past, against all the odds, which is an incredible thing. Wonderful. Because there's a, some Americans that still think that Scotland's an independent country. Well, long that, may that continue. Right, okay. <laughs> Joe, thanks for your call. You're welcome. And good luck uh, tracking down your ancestry in the Outer Hebrides. Bye-bye, Joe. Bye-bye. Slange. So to review, the most tourists go to Mull, Iona, Skye. These are those the Inner Hebrides. Yeah, and then uh, it just takes a lot more money and time to get to the outer islands. But maybe you're more likely to find Scotland in the extreme, the traditional Scottish ways in the far western fringe. Is that true? To a point, um, I think that uh, the areas that uh, you know you touch to get extreme, yeah, mm. you've got to go to the outer Hebrides. You've got to go further north. But the wonderful thing is that uh, you, get, you get that fusion going up north and you somehow instinctively know you're moving into the highlands and, and, and these cultures are there. But yeah, to, you have to go to the outer Hebrides if you want the extremes of the cultures. But and less, less homogenised by the modern world, like you find. Very much so. I mean, there's areas that I go as a guide on a Sunday that uh, I'm looked upon as almost a leper because it's a Sunday and we shouldn't be there. Is that right? Yeah, still today. So very traditional. Well, we've got somebody, I think, who's uh, actually traveled beyond that to the Orkneys, Maggie from uh, Clark, California. Maggie. Yes, I'm here. Thanks, uh, Hello, thanks for your call. You? you traveled to the Orkneys, huh? I, I did. I was there in the spring. I was on a bird watching tour in northern uh, Scotland in the Highlands in Nethybridge, and then I traveled up to the Orkneys on my own. Wow. And uh, took the train from Inverness up and the bus over from John O'Groats and stayed in Kirkwall. And went touring with a local guide up there. He takes about five or six people around in his car to all the sites. The, uh, and up there, the influence in Scandinavian because of the history of the Scandinavian people coming over. Absolutely. And uh, it, it was just absolutely wonderful up there. It Ac- was actually Viking sort of uh, heritage. Yes. 
Yes, yeah, very yeah. much so. So that's kind of a Viking outpost a thousand years ago. Right, but right. They still celebrate Upelier and things like that. Right. Uh, uh, the Arcadians consider themselves probably more north than actually Scots. Now, yes. Ma- Maggie, you mentioned John O'Groats. That's the far north that end of Britain. Right, on, right. On and then took a ferry from there over to Stromness, and then they have a bus that takes you either there to Stromness or Kirkwall. What's Stromness, the capital of the Orkneys or something? Uh, yes. Major town I up think there. Kirkwall is the capital. Kirkwall is the, the capital. Uh, yeah. is the first stop that you take, and that's a little fishing village. Whereas Kirkwall has the stores and the larger hotels, and has a wonderful cathedral there, the Magnus oh, really? Cathedral. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. And um, it it just was. And then you go touring around the island, and you see all these archaeological sites and the Italian chapel. Yeah, and Scarabri. Now, it's now just, was that worth all the trouble and time to get out there? Absolutely. Uh, yes, it was. And it wasn't any trouble. I mean, I think I left Inverness about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday or Tuesday and then got over there by dinner time. You're kidding. No, it, it didn't. It wasn't that long. So, wow. um, and I, as I said, I was traveling on my own and I'm, people were very friendly. Now, um, now Maggie, if, if you have, have you traveled also in the Western Islands, Mole and Iona yes, and so on? Yes, we went over there. Okay, how would you, if somebody has limited time, how would you uh, compare and contrast those two, well, the far I, north or the far west? I liked Iona and Mole very much because uh, it just because of the church and the ruins on Iona, and we stayed at the Western Isle in Tobermory, mm. and that was that was nice. That was a good place to explore the island. You know, Orkney so- has its own flavor because it's so barren, and it's all farming. There are very few trees. It's mm. windblown, so it's, it's a different feel. Now, you mentioned Iona. That's sort of a special place from a church history point of view. Isn't that one of the places where Christianity established a foothold in, yes. in that part of Scotland? And going out there, you read about it, and you wonder, can it really be that special? You get there, and even if you're a skeptic, there's something magical about it the is. atmosphere of Iona. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What, what, uh, Ken and uh, Maggie, what did you find about Iona? What's special about the little island of Iona? Well, luckily it was a very sunny, warm, uh, breezy day that we were there, and so we just hiked around the islands. And as I said, I'm a bird watcher, so we were trying to find this crake, which is out there. And there's a charming little bookstore that you wander in, and then you go in and out of the chapel. Yep. And it's just you spend the day staring off at the water. It's just, it's very relaxing and lovely, and it's a wonderful place to be. It's uh, very rewarding, isn't it, Maggie? I think, yes. uh, you know, there's some sort of magnetic pull uh, uh, there about Christianity as well. The nearer yes. you get down to Finnefort and getting over to uh, to Iona, um, it just seems to... You're separate. Yeah. You uh, take the ferry across the water, and it's yeah. just a separate island, and you're... Uh, it, it was quite, as you say, magical. It's I agree. very rewarding. It doesn't matter what religion you are, there's oh, yeah. a spiritual homecoming there. No, yeah. just the fact that people lived there and they uh, raised their food there and survived. And, and there's something about the visitors to Iona all have, uh, maybe they're pilgrims or maybe they became pilgrims, but everybody has a little dash of pilgrim in them or, or spiritual yes. quest when they're on Iona. Yes, I agree. Now, Iona is a, a short, an easy day trip from Oban. Oban is the major town there, an easy access by train and, and bus and so on. And then uh, from there, you, you hop across the island of Mall to get to the island of Iona. Right. Maggie, thank you so much for your call. Well, thank you. Bye-bye, Maggie. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. There's just a wee dram more with Ken Hanley and your calls coming right up as we explore Scotland on Travel with Rick Steves. Kaji meitame oledapash, aingwa Maasai land, naisafiri for Rick Steves. That's in my Maasai language. My name is meitame oledapash, I'm from Maasai land, in Kenya, and I travel with Rick Steve. Kaji Meitame Oledapash, Nangwa Maasai Land, Naisafiri or Rick Steve. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking about Scotland right now. And we're talking about Scotland with my favorite Scottish tour guide, Ken Hanley, who has flown into our Seattle studios direct from Edinburgh. Ken's been a tour guide in Edinburgh for 30 years, and right now we're talking about the relations between the Scots and the English. Ken, there's been a lot of change lately. I got, you got your new parliament building opened up in Edinburgh. When did that open up? Um, officially uh, 1999, but the new parliament building opened up uh, back in 2004. Quite a striking building. It is stunning, it's isn't it? Very modern statement, isn't it? 
I think so. Uh, um, uh, you know, if you devolve the politics and the mm-hmm. and, and costing, she's uh, an architectural statement. Oh yeah, is it generally accepted by the local people? No, no. I think Why not? Uh, I think people get involved in budgets and uh, what the media tell them, and uh, it's it's a break away from traditional architecture. So they spent a few extra pounds building it then, just a and, wee bit. Yeah. Perhaps. So people thought that might better go into schools or roads, huh? <laughs> now, is there a prejudice between English and Scottish people that that is? Um, whether it's playful or not, what, what are the what are the feelings between Scots and English? Uh, you know, it's that's a, a loaded question in one sense, and if you want an honest, honest answer, uh, the honest answer, yeah, there is. I mean, certain. take uh, sports for example. I mean, if a Scotsman is on a British team, if he does something great, he's a he's a British, Aye. and if he screws up, he's a Scotsman, right? Absolutely, we say that all the time. You know, if we if we win, we're British, but if we get beat, we're we're the jocks for north of the border. But you guys have done more than your share of fighting and defending the British Empire. I mean, really. I think statistically, Scotsmen have shed more blood per capita for England than England has. Uh, of that, there is no doubt. But I mean, you know, I'm not using that as a leverage, but that's a fact. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, what, in World War One, half of all the men in Scotland were casualties or something like in that? In the war, yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Half of all the men? Yeah. Incredible statistics. That is uh, incredible to, uh, to imagine. And... Uh, and, I mean, right now you think of the blaring bagpipes. It's, look out, the Brits are coming, you know? But it's really the Scottish Highlanders, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the mentality with them was uh, send the jocks in, you know? Send the what? The jocks, which is another name for the Scots. Jocks? <laughs> yeah. Like jock strap? <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> what, what does jocks mean? Well, um, it's uh, another name for somebody who's a Scot. You know, they call them, hey, jock. A jock, okay. Uh, so yeah. you guys were the tough fighters. Yeah. So send them in, and yeah. you, took the, you took the hits. Are they still... Still enlisting Scotsmen into the um, British Army? Is that a big deal? Is there what's what, what's going on with how do you get people into the army these days? Yeah, we're still enlisting. Uh, back home, uh, you probably won't hear about it in the states, but uh, they're doing away with some of the regiments. They're doing there's a lot of amalgamation. But yeah, I would say the the percentage wise is very high in Scots joining. Now, is that is that because the Scottish people have less opportunity economically, and uh, the the army presents them a job and some security? Yeah, I guess you could say that. In actual fact, if you look at it, that's probably one of the major reasons. Yeah, so Scotland would right. be an economically disadvantaged part of Great Britain, therefore more of them joined the military. In some areas, that would be the case, yeah. All right. Do people still speak? Is there a Scottish language that survives at all? Absolutely. There's at least two. And I wouldn't say English. Uh, we have Gaelic and we have Old Scots. Do people, I mean, I mean, in Wales, people still speak Welsh. Yeah. In Ireland, people still speak Old Irish. What is, is there a, a people who speak Scottish like as a, I mean, not just a few polite words, but they communicate in their homes in Scottish? Absolutely. Um, you know. Uh, is it a Gaelic language or is it just a Old well, English? They, no, there's an actual Gaelic and about 7% of the populace actually speak Gaelic. And in some of the islands that we talked about earlier on, it is the first language. Wow. Now, if you're, if you're just speaking, you speak with a Scottish accent. I don't think so, but yeah, everybody tells me. Does an Englishman have any trouble understanding you? Um, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Do any schools actually speak Scottish or, or teach in Scottish? No, no. Scots is, is, is a language that's evolved through Robert Burns' times, and to be a true Burnsian, then you understand Scots. Oh, so that's, it's more of a Burns English. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not like an Irish, uh, the Irish language is not, it's not English at all. No. But, but Burns, can you say a little, tell me a little Burns, uh, a famous um, uh, phrase from Burns or a little stanza of his poetry. Yeah. Um, because he was the great Scottish Oh, absolutely. Writer. I mean, we're talking about Haggis, so in keeping with that, uh, we can give you a wee rendition of Fair fall your honest, sonsy face, great chieftain o' the pudding race, aboon them all, attack your place, pain, strife and fear em. But will you worthy o' a grace as lang as my earum, but see the rustic labour dict. <gasps> it cuts you up with bony sect. You just pulled out your little knife. Hey. You had this knife in your stocking when you came on the airplane? Not quite on the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you speak the Burns, when you speak the Burns poetry, the old Scottish... It, your 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 heart must stir as a Scotsman. It, you know, uh, you know, not just saying it for the interview or anything like that. Yeah, it does, and 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 that that is indicative of the Scots uh, and and our passion and our history. Now, is there a, a defense in Scotland not to be bowled over by the mainstream media, the popular media? I know in, in the United States, it's like you can't have an accent and be on the mainstream press. In Scotland, is, in Britain, is there some? some attempt to keep the variety of the dialects and so on by letting Scottish people have their voice in the Scottish mainstream press? 
media. Yeah, that's, a, that's a difficult one. Uh, but I, I, I think, yeah, the answer is that uh, you very seldom hear someone with a broad Scots accent on uh, the main news programmes in England, But whereas uh, in Scotland, obviously, uh, you do. And when you do hear someone, they usually are a very broad. So hence, most people speak what we would call public school accent. That's a you know, uh, but is that public school Scottish or public school English? No, public school English. Oh, oh it is. So it's just your BBC English that people will. So if you're a um, aggressive young uh, communications major in Edinburgh and you want to get into the media, you better learn to speak the Queen's English. Absolutely. Even in Scotland. Even in Scotland. The weatherman in, in Edinburgh or Glasgow, he's going to speak with no Scottish accent. Yeah, he has to. Really. And I mean, it, 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 it tells you that if you have what we call public school accent, it doesn't matter if you come from Inverness. Um, Aviemore or the Borders or Southampton or London or Wales it will be the same throughout in other words right. if, in the States if you live the East Coast West Coast it would be the same accent As a Scotsman what are you most proud of? Just that and my history uh, I, I'm, I'm passionate about Scotland's history for a tiny country to survive what we have survived over the hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, it's amazing that our culture has survived, and I, I can only thank our forefathers who came to America and went all over the globe. They obviously um, had done a lot of good for our country because, by and large, we're held in high esteem. So that I'm very incredibly proud of, of that as well. We're taking your calls and learning about Scotland with Ken Hanley on Travel with Rick Steves. That's 877-333-RICK. Or visit the radio section of our website to add your two cents and follow up on today's discussion. That's at ricksteves.com. And we have Jean on the line from Oakland, California. Jean, thanks for calling. Hi. How are you doing? Fine. Um, My father was born in Duntalker, which is, I believe, seven miles up the river, from Glasgow. Duntalker, yep. And I um, I really don't even know how to spell it. <laughs> and he was part French, so back to Haggis, you can blame him, I guess, or his people. Um, it's the thing, I guess I need to know basics. Uh, I need that good planning so that I can be relaxed when I get there. The best time of year to travel to Glasgow, Duntalker, uh, Edinburgh, what to see in Glasgow. Um, as he, The only stories I remember of Glasgow were of um, all the boys in the family and his father, my grandfather. Well, first of all, Gene, first of all, you got to learn how to pronounce it, Gene. It's Glasgow. Yeah. Right? I'm, I'm always mispronounced ah. also, but there's no L in it there. So, Glas- how do you say that? Glasgow. Glasgow. Uh, Good. Glasgow. Glasgow. Uh, uh, Sorry. Uh, yeah. uh, I, you know, Gene, I, I think. Um, the world's your oyster, and uh, you know whatever suits. But if you went any time May through September, I think you would find uh, um, Glasgow or Edinburgh very rewarding for you. Okay. Glasgow now, you know, they say a leper can't change its spots, but uh, it's changed from an incredible industrial city now uh, to uh, a wonderful, vibrant city, full of architecture, uh, with city of architecture and design and so on. And I think you would find it very rewarding, the infrastructure to get you to Dundalker or through to Edinburgh and various places is all there for you, and uh, you can check that out on the web. You know, Glasgow has emerged as such an exciting cultural destination now, and it's really where, where the action is in Scotland in, in a lot of ways compared to in past times when, as Ken was saying, it was an industrial sort of depressing place. It used to be Andy, it was Andy Cap Town, right? I mean, this is where the cartoon character Andy Cap is from. In that whole accent, is that right? Yeah. Now, if I would say if you have four days in Edinburgh, some people would say the best thing to do in that fourth day would be to take the, the, the train over to Glasgow. It's less than an hour to get to Glasgow. You could have a great day in a wonderful cultural capital that doesn't have much tourism. Get, get back to Edinburgh in time for your haggis. Yep, mm. absolutely. Yep. Leave Edinburgh great. in the morning after breakfast and back in the evening with haggis. Uh, wonderful thought. Good luck, Jean, in your travels. Thank you. Bye-bye, Thank Jean. You. Are Scotsmen frugal or are they cheapskates? <laughs> You know, that's prob- that line was probably written by an Englishman. Uh, <laughs> I think if you went in a bar, seriously, the, the first person or one of the first people up to the bar would probably be a Scot. Buying everybody's would, drinks? And that would be buying. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. So you don't think the, uh, the cheapskate... Uh, no, that's a rumour put about by the English. All right, speaking of pubs, 
is there a good, lively pub scene for the tourists to experience when they're in Edinburgh? What, what would your tips be that way to connect with people? Yeah, I think that's a great way to connect. And American people love to connect. And one of the nicest places socially to connect is if you go into a pub. And there's a bow bar in Victoria Street. There's a bell in, uh, in Cosby Side. There's a wealth of these pubs. Now, are these pubs, some of them high class, some of them low class, some of them different zones within the pub for high and low class? No, I think they're, they're all sort of middle of the road. I mean, there's a lovely bar that you and I had a beer in, in Leslie's. Yeah. You know, that was a lovely architecture. Great neighborhood, very stimulating. They call it a local, right? Because it's just the neighborhood living room. Absolutely. Now, most people think beer when they go to pubs, but in Scotland, a lot of it would be whiskey. Oh, yeah. yeah. What's the deal? Irish and Scotch, they spell whiskey different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we we, we do it the right way. How do you spell it? Uh, Without the E. Without the E. So in Ireland, it's E-Y, and with you, it's W-S-K-Y. And don't ask why. <laughs> don't ask why. Okay, I won't ask why. But what's the difference between Irish whiskey and Scotch whiskey? Well, I mean, you apart just need from to, quality, yeah, you just need to taste it. You know <laughs> no. what I mean? Okay, okay, but but uh, chemically, what's the difference? <laughs> I, I think the process, to be perfectly serious, Rick, is is not dissimilar. In actual fact, the Irish triple distill, whereas we single distill, and I'm talking about a malt, not not the the blends. But the end product, I think, is indicative of what the country has to offer. It's the barley. It, 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 it's the water. It's where the whiskey is kept. It takes on these characteristics. And incidentally, most of it's kept in American bourbon barrels. In American is, bourbon barrels? Absolutely. Made out of what kind of wood? Um, pine. Pine. Yeah. Come, they aged in America with bourbon, and they want to use that to give the more personality to the it whiskey. It gives a characteristic when to When it ages whiskey. in Scotland. Absolutely. I'll never forget my experience this last summer in Edinburgh. At the top, they have that goofy Disney kind of whiskey tour. It's, uh, we call it Malt Disney. And then you'd ride a little, you actually ride a barrel through there and you get a taste of whiskey aye, in aye. But then at the bottom, Caddenheads. Do you know this yep. Caddenheads shop? Yes, I do. Little shop at the bottom of the Royal Mile. And the man there is so proud because he bottles whiskey straight out of the kegs. And it's not homogenized and colorized and whatever, nope. uniformized for mass consumption. But it is for the connoisseur of whiskey, right? Yes, and you can very quickly get to that, Rick, as you probably rightly found, or not, you did rightly find out, and it's what we call unchilled, unfiltered. So as you rightly say, it's not prepared to look good for the for, So for you the can masses. actually buy that in the supermarkets? You just look for unchilled, unfiltered? You can now, yeah. Because he told me, he said, look at these famous bottles over there. All the names on those bottles. Those people love their whiskey, but they don't drink it out of those mass-produced bottles. They drink yeah. it out of these little bottles directly bottled from the cask. That's right. He said it's not purified. It's full of impurities. And he, then we, like little children, we gathered around the wine, the whiskey, the little shot of whiskey in the glass. And he poured some spring water in there. And he said, look at the impurities bubbling up here. Aye. He said, it's like, it's like a garden when a spring rain shower hits it. It brings out all the, the, the fragrance. It, and I sipped it, and I, could, I learned right then how whiskey can become a very good friend. Oh, absolutely. You know, and within moderation, it really and truly is. But to take whiskey at that level and like that, it's not just for you and I. We, everybody can do that. In other words, if they're aware, if the people out there is aware that that whiskey is available, which it is, then they can experience that uh, taste of a lifetime. And I had never in my life tried to understand the taste of whiskey. And right there in that little shop, it was a wonderful touristic experience for me, a cultural experience. And I yeah. learned a little bit about the soul of Scotland. Yep. Well, you certainly do with the whiskey. And then, you know, the, the, the typical cheers is um, Slandivar. What does that mean? Good health. Good health. Yeah. Well, Ken Hanley from Edinburgh, Slandivar. Thank Sl- you very much for joining us. Slandivar. Sleep on the boat like a bird on the wing All with the sailors cry the land that's born Let's go.
From time to time, we like to read from the travel haiku poems that our listeners send us at Travel with Rick Steves. The radio section of our website has details on submitting an original poem about your travels. We reward those whose submissions we use with a gift certificate for our online travel store. Here are some recent submissions that we thought you'd enjoy. Nima Shalapur of Northbrook, Illinois, sends us this haiku about the ways travel has taught him about himself. See the world's splendor, foreign people, places, things, learning about me. Carol Silva of West Lynn, Oregon, sends us a collection of haiku inspired by a long drive through Scotland. We especially like this image. Catalan Roadway. Drover says, be bold, drive through. Isle of Skye Rush Hour. And Abby Drake of Edmonds, Washington, has this to say about her adventures with the Bolivian healthcare system after making a mistake about where to eat dinner. An Inca Revenge, Bolivian Chinese food, coming out both ends. If you'd like to add a thought to today's discussion, you can post your comments on our website. Go to ricksteves.com and look for the message boards in our radio section. This is where you'll find our program archives and where you're welcome to add to any of our discussions. You can also participate in our message boards in the graffiti wall section of our website. Hundreds of other travelers post their comments on dozens of travel topics right there. We're all in the same traveler's school of hard knocks, and this is where we compare notes. You don't need to register. Just go to ricksteves.com and you can be part of Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program and listen again to this and other editions of the program, including a link to podcast versions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show. And send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. Details are at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include Sonia Grosset, Rachel Unk, and Robin Stencil, with technical support from John Weist and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.